Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. My special thanks go out to Wellington Management for sponsoring this mini-series, Sustainable Investing, The Next Frontier. Wellington Management serves as an asset manager and trusted advisor to clients representing more than $1 trillion in assets worldwide. Wellington has explored long-term sustainability issues since the 1970s and continues this practice today through internal research, engagement, and its innovative climate research initiative with top-ranked think tank Woods Hole Research Center. Wellington's investors strive to assess investments holistically through the triangulation of insights across equity, fixed income, and ESG research. The firm's sustainable investing practice also features market-leading impact, stewardship, and climate capabilities. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. In January, James Aitken told me, it doesn't matter what you think about ESG, the clamor will only increase, fund flows will accelerate, and we need to set our cynicism aside and be mindful of the consequences. It's going to be with us for a long time to come. Ever since, I've grown increasingly curious about the megatrend of sustainable investing. Climate change dominated the discussion at Davos a few weeks after, and social issues about the treatment of workers are front and center since the onset of COVID-19. This miniseries, Sustainable Investing, The Next Frontier, is my effort to learn alongside you through conversations with serious, passionate practitioners in the field. For the next month, you'll hear conversations twice a week in a familiar style and format, all focused on this important investment area. My guest on the fourth episode of Sustainable Investing, The Next Frontier, is Manny Citron, 
Managing Partner at Volary Capital, a private equity firm he co-founded in 2017 to invest in asset management businesses and companies that generate positive social and environmental impact. Manny and his team have canvassed a landscape of over 1,000 sustainable investing-focused funds and shares a glimpse of what that research discovered. We discuss Manny's path to founding Volary, mapping the universe of impact managers, identifying attractive manager characteristics and thematic opportunities, conducting due diligence, measuring impact, and adding value to portfolio companies. We then turn to investor interest in the space, risks, Volary's backing of Renewable Resources Group, and the future of impact investing. I want to take a quick sec and remind you of our premium service and free mailing list. For a premium membership, you can support the show, access the entire library of transcripts, and a few other special nuggets that come up from time to time. You can also sign up to our mailing lists of a small selection of the best content we see. Both are available on buttons at the top of the homepage at the website, capitalallocatorspodcast.com. Please enjoy this fourth episode of Sustainable Investing the Next Frontier, my conversation with Manny Citron from Volary Capital. Manny, great to see you. Thank you, Ted. You too, always. Why don't we get started with just your background and how it led to your interest in this space? Sure. I grew up in Atlanta. That's my hometown. Love growing up there and, and love going back. My family's still there. And Growing up, my parents were both entrepreneurs in a way. My dad was a, a doctor, but opened his own practice. And my mom had a matchmaking business throughout my childhood. I went to college in Philly, which has become one of my adopted homes. My in-laws are there and a lot of good friends too. And then when I graduated from college, I traveled for a while, including a little over a year in Africa and the Middle East. And that was a, a formative experience for me. And I think relates to some of my orientation toward what we're doing at, at Bullery. What was traveling in Africa like back then? For me, it was a unique experience in a lot of ways. It was independence. It was separation from a lot of the friends and family and support I had known. I was with two friends and we spent the bulk of that trip, actually eight months on motorcycles, riding from Cape Town in South Africa to just north of Ethiopia. So we were you know, really separated for parts of that trip from the kind of worlds that we had known. And it was an incredible experience where we camped outdoors, you know, night after night. And it was really all about people and the hospitable and, and fun and gracious people that we met along the way. And I, I took a lot away from that trip, including how far a dollar can go uh, in different contexts, whether applied philanthropically or as investment capital. Um, so I really learned a lot from that experience. And then once you get back, you hop off your motorcycle and decide you've got to do something with your life? Exactly right. So I got back in the beginning of 1998, and I was very fortunate. I landed a job at a firm called Beacon Group, which was a great firm. It was half M&A advisory, half private equity, and it was a terrific initial professional experience for me. I had a lot to learn, and I had a, a great couple of years there, ended up leaving Beacon to help my mom take her matchmaking business online during Internet 1.0. That was a great experience, but ultimately it wasn't a career for me and I wanted to get back to private equity. So I went back to school, got an MBA, and I joined a private equity firm called Stone Point Capital. 
Well, why don't you touch a little bit on your trajectory at Stone Point and how that led to you know, your shift into this space? Yeah, Stone Point was uh, an incredible experience for me. I thought I knew and appreciated high standards and had, had worked with impressive people before, but that firm is a special place. They know what they're doing. And I was fortunate to be a part of it for 11 and a half years. And it's a financial services focused private equity firm. And when I joined, Stone Point had just begun to focus on investing in asset managers. And you might recall, Ted, Stone Point's first investment in an asset manager was backing Todd Combs, who's now at Berkshire Hathaway. It's a funny coincidence, but Todd and I started at the, on, on the same day, me as an associate on the investment team at, at Stone Point and Todd to launch Castle Point. But it was a terrific evolution for me. I joined as a generalist on the investment team and ended up focusing on the asset management vertical. And then along the way, I was also asked to start and run the marketing IR function for the firm, which was also you know, a terrific experience. And StonePoint made investments in some excellent, very differentiated asset managers. And I got to work closely with a dozen of them. And it was great. They're great people, smart, committed to their businesses and helping them grow and institutionalize their firms was fun for me. And it was uh, it was a successful vertical for the firm for Stone Point. I love Stone Point and um, had a great experience there. But I had started thinking about impact a couple of years before I left. I had a lot to learn. But the more I did and, and after I met a couple of managers who I found very impressive that were committed to the space, the more I was compelled that investing with a focus on social and environmental considerations is first a serious discipline that's practiced by committed and talented professionals. Second, it's forward-looking, and it's a powerful tool with which to address significant social and environmental issues. And third, and for me, this was the most important um, at the outset, was that it represented a, a differentiated and accretive approach to investing. And so at some point, I decided that I had to commit to, to learn more. And so I did, and I left Stone Point early in 2017. So as you thought about starting a business, what was it about impact that led you to focus on the E and S issues? Fundamentally, we think focusing on environmental and, and social considerations is just a, a better way to invest. It's the same thing as regular investing, but it uses an extra set of filters, and that's using ESG factors to identify risks and opportunities in the material economic aspects of a business. So from our perspective, taking action on these considerations, investing dollars against them should, should be accretive. To just give you a few examples, companies that treat their employees well tend to have le less turnover and greater productivity because they attract higher quality employees. And, and there's lower risk around labor supply at important points in the production process or companies that are thoughtful about it and make products with less packaging, eliminate both cost and waste. So it's considerations like that. And also companies with these considerations have shown to be able to reduce volatility and trade at higher multiples and access you know, a lower cost of capital. So we think there are a lot of reasons that this is just a, a really thoughtful approach to investing, thoughtful additional approach to investing. That the, the, the way to have the most significant positive impact is um, and, to, and to do it on a sustainable basis is to first do no harm or proactively 
think about mitigating your negative impacts. And then second, integrate environmental and social considerations into your business activities to measure positive outcomes. We we think that businesses that do that are going to benefit, that that it's it's good, it's healthy for businesses, it changes the way they behave internally and their the way their customers engage with them, and it creates a lot of impact along the way. So when you went to start Volary, what was the strategy you chose to pursue? Well, we started with a blank sheet of paper, and I should say the first thing I did was partner with my longtime friend, Danny Stein, who had collaborated with on investment thinking over time and had looked at deals with, but you know the stars never aligned to enable us to really formally partner together, but they did in over the summer of 2017, and we, we formally launched that October. And again, we started with a lot to learn. We founded Volary to make private equity investments that generate positive social or environmental impact. And we quickly decided to focus on asset managers. Danny has run five businesses and ran a private equity platform. So he's a business builder. And obviously, I had experience with asset managers. And given our backgrounds, we thought the idea of investing in and helping institutionalize asset managers and helping make connections between impact-oriented GPs and mainstream LPs could be a sort of force multiplier role that we might be able to help play in the space. You decide to focus on that space backing asset managers. I imagine the first step is to try to figure out who's out there. Certainly was for us. Um, Yeah, so we formalized Volary in late 2017, and we really spent the year of 2018 mapping the market. So we have so far mapped over 1,200 managers across asset classes and, and geographies. And the, you know, the majority of those are, are not addressable for us as investment propositions, primarily because they're subscale or they operate in geographies that are outside of our scope. But that does leave plenty of room for us, plenty of interesting managers for us to, to potentially invest in. What does that map look like? It spans asset classes. And then within asset classes, we group managers into 27 impact categories. Um, And then within those categories, we green, yellow, and red the managers based on what we learn about them from publicly available information, dialogues we begin to have with them, observations we take in from others. But it's it's an expansive map and it covers landscape from an asset class perspective, but also thematically according to impact categories. And so if you go across both of those, where do you see the preponderance of potential opportunities across asset classes? So in order to focus our prioritization, we think about a few different factors. We tend to like large categories. So if we're going to take the time to study up, we'll have multiple ways to invest. We think about cyclicality as we think about portfolio construction. So we want a mix of counter-cyclical, acyclical, and, and pro-cyclical strategies. We like secular tailwinds. And you know, those can be driven by any number of factors like consumer demand or, or technological developments or capital flows. And then we, we want to understand the potential for positive impact. And that's both because we care about the impact, but also because we believe that impact is accretive to the investment theses of, you know, of our managers and, and of our investments. And so we want to make sure that we understand the alignment of that impact with our investment thesis, but also the potential scale. Using those factors helps us prioritize and then deprioritize 
some of the the asset classes and the the sub themes that we're targeting. As you've walked through that, I mean, impact is clearly one of your criteria, but what you're laying out sounds far more as an investment return driven thesis than a heartfelt change the world thesis. I think we believe in both. So, you know, we're very intentional about impact, but we also believe that the way to have an impact and to to build sustainable businesses to operate within market mechanisms. And again, one of the things that initially compelled me about the the field of impact investing or the consideration of social and environmental factors in in investing is that it is accretive. It certainly is the way we invest. And so we, you know, we're aspiring to sort of combine both of those ways of thinking. And as you've looked at that landscape, you, you mentioned looking for these bigger opportunities with thematic growth behind you. Where have you focused in in that sort of broad landscape of managers? Well, one particular area that is topical given where we are in the macro environment and and the you know the devastation of the coronavirus and the the significant layoffs that have happened is a, a mandate that we recently signed with a group called Zoma Capital in Denver, which is a, a terrific longstanding values oriented investor, which is to focus on on workforce development. So helping retrain, upskill employees who you know we thought this was a a very relevant category even prior to the coronavirus but helping prepare people to retrain to meet changes in the workforce so that's a particular area of focus right now there are several others within private equity healthcare and financial services present some opportunities that are that are very interesting to us and that you know we think have an ability to scale and and have real impact and there's a lot for us to do in real assets Sustainable agriculture was our first subcategory of interest and remains a sector where we hope to do more. Water uh, is an area of interest for us. And, and renewable and energy efficiency assets are, are of real interest to us too. There's a lot of attention being focused on workforce and, and people. When you know people think about impact, often they divide the world into people and the planet. It'd be easy to, to push off climate right now. And there, there is some concern in the impact markets that the immediacy of the coronavirus crisis could cause capital that could might otherwise be directed toward climate toward other strategies and and we were hoping that capital can flow toward strategies that are investing in both uh, we still you know the the climate issues that we faced before the coronavirus crisis are still very real and if anything i think this you know that this crisis has made clear that you know we need to prepare for what happens when you let natural systems get out of balance? So we're still very focused there as well. You know, one of the strategies that we like within climate is energy efficiency. So microgrids and distributed power generation. So cleaner, cheaper, more reliable energy that's produced closer to the point of use. Those strategies, I think, will continue to both offer positive environmental impact, but but also accretive propositions to the users, to you know, data centers who are who are looking for that kind of local reliable power, hospitals, other large scale users of power who, you know, who need to transition from the traditional grid onto more, you know, efficient uh, sources of, of power. So longer term, we just think the trends are still moving in in the direction of renewables and energy efficiency. I'd love to walk through the investment process. We touched on 
you were mapping this landscape, but why don't we start with sourcing managers and how you've gone about that process? Our sourcing strategy is almost completely outbound uh, in our part of the market. No one's really intermediating these deals. We go out and create them. And, and that's great. We, we like that. We, as I said, we map the market. We develop our thesis toward you know, where we think it makes the most sense to deploy capital. And then we pick up the phone. So we green, yellow, red, the managers, and we reach out to the green managers. When we can, we go visit them in their offices or we you know, we'll Zoom or video conference with them. But the, the idea is to engage in a dialogue so we can learn more about them. They can learn more about us and the, the kind of value-added partner that we like to think of ourselves as being. And then together, we can decide if a, a path toward a mutually beneficial partnership makes sense. And given the nascent stage of this kind of sub-group of managers, do you have a preference for the stage of development of a manager? We're flexible around stage. What I would say is there are there are a handful of criteria that are very important to us. And if we can satisfy those, we can be flexible around other criteria. And so the starting points for us are that we're talking to a best-in-class manager, that they have a differentiated and repeatable investment strategy, that we're getting into business together on an aligned basis, that we, Volry, know how we're going to add value as a partner in the business. We think about structuring our investment with downside protection. And then the last and certainly not the least is that the, the manager actively takes social or environmental considerations into account throughout their investment process. So if we can satisfy those six criteria, we, we can back a manager that is more established or one that is still emerging. And, and we have partners, LP capital partners that are committing to support managers in the impact space that are both established and emerging. I guess the obvious question is always, how do you define what best in class means? Well, track record helps, obviously, but it's you have to take a holistic approach to that, Ted, as you know. So show me your track record, terrific, but th that's not sufficient to make an investment decision. You have to understand their process. So how do they get there? How do they source deals? How do they underwrite deals? How do they think about adding value you know, through uh, portfolio holds? How do they think about risk management? How, you know, what, what's the composition of the team and how do they interact together? How do they think about optimizing value on exit? All, all of those sort of considerations factor into what we think of as best in class. So I don't mean to be glib in, in saying that. We, you know, we have sort of a structured way to evaluate it, but it does boil down to what we think are the highest caliber managers in a space. Investing is a hard business and creating market rate returns is challenging. So you, you really have to be partnered with managers who appreciate how challenging it is, who have the experience of doing what they're proposing to do, and who are differentiated. Now, where did these managers come from in this space in particular that's, it may not be new, but the whole notion of this sustainable investing as a category is relatively new? It's interesting. I mean, we found, you know, as newcomers to the space are, ourselves are maybe a few years in now, you know, we found that there are managers in the space who have been in the space for many years who are just as talented, just as committed and experienced as managers we've worked with in an asocial context. And we're finding, and, and it's one of the encouraging things about being in the space, we're finding that the talent coming into the space now is very impressive. And so we're seeing and, and are in discussions with managers who are spinning out of 
regular way. Firms, whether private equity, real assets, credit where, you know, wherever they are, who in some cases own track records, in some cases might not technically, but are very experienced uh, investors who want to apply what they've learned and what they've done and their networks to investing in social or environmentally oriented context. And so walk me through what that due diligence process looks like after you have this first reach out to them. Sure. So again, we start with underwriting cash flows. We're value investors. And with a focus on asset managers, that means for us teasing out the various cash flow streams that we would be buying into. So that's you know, management fees on funds that have already been raised and it's and it's management fees on funds that are expected to be raised. It's depending on the asset class, could be carried interest that, you know, that we're forecasting owning an interest in. And that could again be on funds that have already been raised, maybe already raised and deployed, or maybe raised but not yet deployed. And it could be on on funds that are expected to be raised. Depending on the structure of the deal we're contemplating, we could also be investing directly into some portion of the existing portfolios or individual companies. So we underwrite each of those items individually as well. And so we take what we think of as a traditional private equity approach to uh, to due diligence and underwriting, and it takes place over months, uh, and it's and it's very comprehensive. And then, of course, we also overlay our process for evaluating managers based on their orientation to impact. And we've developed a, a framework for doing that that's called Alpha, uh, which is interwoven into the rest of our underwriting process. And it stands on the shoulders of giants in that it utilizes a lot of the sophisticated tools that have already been created by others in the impact space. But it enables us to evaluate asset managers and companies in certain aspects of their business as relates to environmental and, and social considerations. Alpha sounds like it might be an acronym. It is. So yeah, each of the letters represents a particular vertical that we use to evaluate the managers. And But before diving into that, maybe just as a higher level way of thinking about it, when we formulated Alpha, and really the, the credit goes to our team and should take a, a minute at some point to just talk about the, the team, because I think it's, again, back to the idea that talent is flowing into this space. I think we at Ulrich are the beneficiaries of that, and and we've got folks on the team who have been really thoughtful in helping us put together this framework in particular, but who really are the best accomplishment of our firm so far. But but at a high level, the the approach to underwriting on the basis of environmental and social considerations is anchored for us in a few pillars that are then reflected through the the Alpha framework. And so the first is measurable outcomes. We're seeking to invest in asset managers and companies that demonstrate measurable social and environmental impact. And that's important because if you can't measure it, you can't improve it. And that goes for us and for the, the firms we're investing in. The second is that, again, you know, we take a holistic approach to underwriting. And from a financial perspective, as I said, it's a focus on process in, in addition to just focus on performance. But from an environmental and, and social considerations perspective, same thing. So we want to understand how a manager approaches impacts. What's the level of ESG expertise on their team? How committed to these kind of considerations is the senior management team? Is their approach to environmental or social considerations differentiated, just like an investment strategy has to be differentiated? You know, what, what do they measure and, and report to their 
stakeholders. So that's sort of a holistic evaluation of a manager from both a financial and an impact perspective is is an important part of the way we think about this kind of underwriting. Uh, and then the third pillar is financial returns. So again, we believe that these considerations should be accretive to investment returns. So understanding and underwriting the economic and impact alignment of a particular investment strategy is is important to us as well. And how does that translate into what alpha means to you? Each of the letters does represent a vertical and alpha. It helps us understand how a manager evaluates environmental and social risks throughout the investment life cycle. It helps us measure and manage the resulting outcomes of their investments or how it helps them do that. Uh, it helps us do that as well. And then and then thirdly, it, it helps us understand how effectively they apply those same principles within the operations of their own firm. So to give you an example, the first A in alpha stands for approach to ENS, and that's the framework beneath that helps us understand how they utilize environmental and social considerations in their diligence process, how they think about evaluating risks and opportunities related to those factors during underwriting, but then throughout portfolio management, how they um, set goals and, and action plans for their portfolio companies and how they think about those considerations at exit. So approach to ENS is the first A in alpha. The L is leadership. So what's the buy-in, again, from you know, the senior management and, and what sort of internal and external capacity have they committed to, have they invested in that aligns with evaluating these sort of considerations? How, how do they engage with their stakeholders, their LPs, their employees, the employees of their portfolio companies, the suppliers, et cetera, the entire stakeholder universe, which we think is an important part of investing and building businesses going forward, how they how they train their team, how their incentives are aligned. Those are some of the, the factors that we think about in, in the L. The P is presentation. So that's how they measure and report. Do they use standardized metrics or you know, are they, they using metrics that they create themselves and change over time? How frequently are they are they reporting? Are they forecasting expected outcomes around some of these considerations? That, you know, again gives us a feel for for how experienced and differentiated around these considerations of manager is. And by the way, if they're very intentional, we can also help with a lot of this thinking. So there's no minimum bar necessarily that we're looking to overcome. Just to round it out, the, the H is the their hypothesis for impact. So are they articulating what we think is a, a relevant thesis for addressing a significant challenge? Do they consider both the, the negative impacts of what they do as well as the positive? Are we aligned with other initiatives in the in the market that could be collaborators and again, accretive to the investment thesis of, of the manager, those sort of things? And then the, the last day is, is, and I touched on this, but it's the application of the, the values within the firm itself. So, you know, are they providing quality benefits and, and compensation to their employees? Do they have a, you know, an inclusive culture? Are they engaging with their broader communities? Considerations like that. I'm curious, when you take the experience that you've had in the past working with managers, after you decide to invest with a manager, how are you trying to add value as a backer of them? A lot of the ways that we're trying to add value are, are very similar to the way we've experienced it in the past. And that's, you know, firm development and capital raising primarily are two large categories and happy to talk about the you know the approaches to each of those. But the third that that is 
different in this case is helping them think about environmental and social considerations and how they integrate those into their investment process and how they, they measure and report. And we think there is value to add in all three of those categories. I want you to walk through each one. Sure. You know, firm development, this is really about implementing best practices. So understanding what others in a particular asset class or investment category are doing from a risk and compliance perspective. What are the state of the art approaches? How are firms recruiting and retaining their best personnel? What are the reporting standards and the best practices there? How are firms thinking strategically about adding products or about ways to, you know, to better improve their investment strategies. And again, ENS considerations weave into all of those factors, but you know, we think there's there's low-hanging fruit for for a lot of managers that aren't quite up the curve in that, you know, these considerations are really just another set of lenses to use to evaluate risks, I, identify risks and opportunities in the material economic aspects of businesses that they're looking at. So we weave this approach to environmental and social considerations into firm development. And then on the capital raising side, again, number of subcategories, we think about the approach to marketing and investor relations and what sort of resources a firm has committed to those things, how thoughtful they are in articulating the differentiation of their investment strategy. Again, if they're focused on environmental and social considerations, how do they articulate that? Are they telling their stories effectively? And we found that a lot of Managers are are really good investors, but aren't necessarily uh, as practiced in in telling their stories and helping connect what they do and the, and and why it's meaningful to LPs and other constituents. So we focus there. We we think a lot about fundraising strategy. So you know, depending on whether you're talking about a, a closed end fund or an open end fund, you'll have different approaches to that. But we we help managers think through that. We make direct introductions to you know LPs and consultants that we know when we think it's a, a good fit from both perspectives. And, and we also think about product development again, you know, if it's if it's a natural extension for a manager to to add a credit strategy or a real asset strategy, as long as it's close to home and leverages what is differentiated about that manager already, we can, you know, we're happy to help think through those things and, and happy to help fund the launch of those sort of initiatives. What are you seeing on the other side in terms of reception and interest in the allocator community for these strategies? It's interesting. It's unlike the asocial market in that, you know, in the asocial market, most allocators are appropriately focused initially on the risk of return profile of an investment strategy and they want to do their diligence to understand that it's valid that the you know what the manager is proposing to do is something that they can execute on but you know there's not a particular theme that that allocator is necessarily focused on in the impact universe there are allocators who are focused on particular impact themes so some folks are more focused on again people some are more focused on the planet and obviously you know within those broad categories there are you know, subcategories that people are particularly focused on. So it's a different approach when you bring products, investment products to to this market. And different LP types are further along than others. There are a lot of high net worth investors that have been very committed to impact and have helped lead the way and have helped prove the alpha generating ability of some of these investment strategies. And they're, you know, they're followed by um, a number of foundations and endowments have been allocators. Number of the public pensions have specific mandate to allocate to climate or 
emerging manager strategies or other um, impact-oriented strategies. And so there are very committed LPs to the space, but you have to be a little more rifle shot in connecting particular strategies to uh, LPs with particular interests. And our hope is that as the investors who are focused on particular strategies initially, again, prove the case and prove that you can create market rate returns and in fact can create alpha through some of these considerations that you know it will help mainstream impact to some degree and that the broader LP community will appreciate these considerations, again, as, as another way to evaluate risks and identify opportunities. So as you bring this all home, maybe it's best to walk all the way through one of your investments, just as an example from where you found it, to how the whole through the due diligence process and how it all played out. I'd love to do that. So our first investment was in a firm called Renewable Resources Group, call them RRG for short. And we invested in RRG in the fall of 2018. It's RRG is a sustainable ag and water real assets manager based in Los Angeles, has been in, in business for almost 15 years. And when we were introduced to RRG, we had begun mapping the landscape of sustainable ag managers. It was the, the first category of interest to us for a number of reasons that relate to the considerations I, I described before. But we were explicitly introduced to our RRG by two family offices that had invested with RRG before and were thinking about anchoring a commingled blind pool capital fundraise that RRG was contemplating. They had, at the time, put a billion dollars of equity to work, but on a deal-by-deal basis. They hadn't yet raised a large commingled fund. And the two family offices that we ultimately partnered with in our investment in RRG had partnered with them before, thought they were compelling, and, and wanted to support the idea of their launching a large pool of capital. And so they brought us in and asked us to meet the folks at, at RRG, who are now our, our partners and very good friends. And we were impressed with what we saw. These are you know very sophisticated investors. They had a track record of doing what they were proposing to do on a you know on a larger commingled basis. They had realized a little over a third of what they deployed, zero realized losses, high teens net returns in real assets, differentiated approach to each of their investments. So great thesis. And it was a situation that we thought we could really add value to. So we helped negotiate an investment there in both the, the management company and the go forward vehicles of the of the firm so that we're aligned. And then we dug in together. So we, beginning in the fall of 2018, helped RRG prepare for fundraise for uh, what is now called the Sustainable Water Impact Fund, which actually just two weeks ago uh, had its final closing at the hard cap. So they um, RRG set out to raise $750 million for that fund and, and ultimately hit the, the hard cap of just over $900 million. And part of that was preparing for the fundraise. So, you know, thinking through what sort of materials investors were going to need to see to do their due diligence, how to articulate RRG's highly differentiated strategy. They are real experts uh, in what they do, and, and in particular in water and in the acquisition and storage and conveyance and application of water, uh, a lot of which they express through 
agriculture assets, and some of which they express through water-specific related assets, but helping tease out again what makes that strategy so differentiated, bringing that to the market in a way that's consistent with the right sort of strategy for approaching a a closed-end fundraise. And it was a very collaborative effort between the family offices that are, that are our partners, ourselves, and most importantly, the folks at RRG. As you walked through that, you know, there's, the question popped in my mind of what's the structure of Volary today? Well, we're an investment advisor and we're managing capital on behalf of a couple of partnerships. The first is with Aries Management, who we partnered with about a year ago and has been a, a terrific partner, by the way, incredibly thoughtful people and have been very available to us in understanding a few sectors in particular and at a very granular level. So that's been that's been really good. And the second is a partnership with Zoma Capital out of Denver, who are very committed, experienced investors in these categories. And that will be initially focused on workforce development, which is incredibly timely given the crisis that we're all going through in the employment sector, but also other themes, energy transition, water, community development, for example. And we have intentionally not raised a fund yet. We likely will at some point in the next six to 18 months, but we have some terrific mandates to focus on in the meantime. What areas of your focus are those two mandates? With Aries, it's focused on established asset managers in several impact categories, but sort of opportunistic thematically. And then with Zoma, it'll be more focused on emerging managers. So folks that are newer to the space, but also looking at established managers in the categories of focus. What does the competitive landscape look like? In particular, let's start with what what you're doing. Every alt strategy is competitive and ours is no different. You know, when people think about equity investments in asset managers, I think they tend to think about the Dials and Peters Hills of the world, which are you know sort of the, the larger cap um, strategies in the space. And, and we think those are impressive firms and their strategies are compelling, but they're very different. They're investing in different types of cash flows than we are. We're, ours is more growth equity oriented. And there are other folks investing in managers in, in the middle market, but none that are as focused on impact and sustainability in the same way that we are. And there are firms focused on impact and sustainability and backing asset managers, but they tend to be focused on very specific themes or are in geographies that don't really overlap with ours. Probably the biggest competition, but we encourage it, is from high net worth families who, again, are focused on particular impact themes and want to support a manager or two who are addressing those themes. But again, we see that as room for collaboration. As interest is clearly picking up, what do you see as the key risks investing in this space? There are risks in investing in any space. From a bigger picture perspective, you know, we worry a little bit about, as a lot of folks in the impact category do, the risk of greenwashing, the risks of confusion and complexity around the nomenclature or metrics that people use to evaluate investments in this space, that those things will turn investors off, that investors who I think are giving these these strategies a chance, we'll lose the opportunity to demonstrate that this approach. Also, just the underperformance of these investment strategies. So again, the idea of identifying, differentiating between managers who are well-intentioned, but don't necessarily have the experience or haven't set their firms up to execute on differentiated investment strategies. Differentiating between those and firms that have and that are set up to create market rate returns is, we think, very important and is something that, that we hope to help 
address. How do you think this whole space progresses over the next couple of years? Well, you know, it's a very interesting moment for the impact space and for ESG-oriented investors as we're dealing with the pandemic. And a lot of the ENS considerations that folks have been focused on in the space have been focused on for years are coming to the force. D- disaster preparedness and continuity planning and in employee treatment through benefits like paid sick leave through the coronavirus crisis, we're seeing how important it has been to, to be prepared for those sort of disruptions. And going forward, we think it's going to be even more so. You've chosen to focus on the E and the S in the common ESG. Are there particular reasons why the G part isn't as much of a focus for you? It is. It is. And we don't mean to take it for granted. We think governance is vitally important. But in our strategy, we're more focused on private market strategies than public. And so through our investment structures, we are explicitly able to to impact governance. So that can be through minority protections, it can be through overt control or through other uh, ways that we interact with our managers. So for us, that's something that we engage with directly on a negotiated basis with the firms that we're investing in. And governance is actually, there's data that, that supports the idea that governance in public companies does have a meaningful positive effect on the you know the earnings of those businesses and the way they trade. Public market strategies are a little tougher for us to invest in. We like certain hedge fund strategies, but long only strategies, which again we believe are important and can outperform. But that are you know those strategies focused on ESG tougher for us to invest in asset managers focused on those strategies because it's you know the independent managers prosecuting those strategies have tough competition. Um, we're supportive of them for sure, but tough to compete with the distribution capabilities of a BlackRock or a Fidelity. So it's no, it's no less important to us, but it's something that we address in a more specific way through the deals that we negotiate. Well, Manning, I want to take a little bit of time and turn to some closing questions. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? It is a bit of a violation because I do it with my family, but for favorite, I would say travel. And in particular, travel with my family. I, I just still find so much pleasure in seeing the world and, and learning about different places and meeting people from different backgrounds and with different circumstances and, and appreciating that, you know, for the most part, people are more similar to each other than we tend to appreciate. What's your biggest pet peeve? I know what my kids would say of my biggest pet peeve is when people cut in line. I just I find it just a, a fundamental unfairness. So and how about on the investment side? I, w- I would say the the fashion of it sometimes, the way certain companies or personalities develop a, a following that separates from substance and then can tend to drift on and collect support from observers or you know, passive market participants until all of a sudden either the emperor has no clothes or the fashion goes out of fashion. Just don't like that it departs from what's supposed to be you know, an increasingly set of efficient market mechanisms based on fundamentals. What do you do for self-growth? I read a lot. I work out. I meditate and, and, and journal. But really, for me, I try to spend as much time as I, as I can with my wife and kids. That's when I really relax and recharge. Right. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? Well, I've learned so much from my parents. They raised me. They both made their own way in the world. My dad grew up in New York and and became the first doctor ever in his family and you know, moved to Atlanta to start his own practice. My mom was born in Romania and then grew up in France and Mexico before coming to the States. 
by herself when she was 17. I, I would say that they've both taught me not to live in fear. They've encouraged me and my, my brother to travel and explore the world. And they, they always gave us a, a lot of independence, which I think helped us learn how to learn for ourselves. Last one, Manny, what life lesson or maybe motto have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? Can I give two? Oh, the first one will sure. be brief. The first is don't let anybody tell you what you can or can't do. You, you should decide that for yourself. And the second is not to envy other people's success. I think first, it sets you up for a, a happier life. But beyond that, if you can legitimately root for other people's success and you help them take action to get there and you're never resentful about it along the way, you sincerely care that they'll, you know, that they can be successful, then I think you become a real friend to them and lots of great things can grow from that. Manny, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you, Ted. I, I'm a fan of the show. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All opinions expressed by guests on this show are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect those of their firm. Manager's appearance on the show does not constitute an endorsement or investment recommendation by TED or Capital Allocators.